Welcome to a recording from a La Trobe Asia public event. Why the Indo-Pacific? The term was once confined to academic foreign policy discussions, but in recent years it has gained widespread political and public acceptance. So what does it mean, and why is it now emerged as a key region? In this panel you'll hear from Professor Nick Bisley, Head of the School of Humanities and Social Sciences and Professor of International Relations at La Trobe University. Dr. Priya Chako, Senior Lecturer in International Politics in the Department of Politics and International Studies at the University of Adelaide, and Abjit Singh, former Naval Officer and Senior Fellow at the Observer Research Foundation. The panel was hosted by Dr. Alexander Davis, a New Generation Network Postdoctoral Research Fellow with the Australian India Institute and La Trobe University. It was held in partnership with the Australia India Institute and recorded on the 28th of March 2019. As you know, the framing of this event is on the Indo Pacific and why this concept has become such a dominant catchphrase or uh, strategic construct in, in Australian foreign policy and in Indian foreign policy and, and around, around the region. The term describes a single strategic arc which links the Pacific Ocean to the Indian Ocean. At its greatest extent, it starts from the Cape of Good Hope, uh, moves north through to the Middle East, to Iran and Suez, across the Indian Ocean to Australia and Southeast Asia, and then to the Pacific Island, taking in the Pacific Islands, Hawaii, across the ocean again, and then up and down the coast of South and Central America, Mexico, the US and Canada. The idea of this enormous region as a single unified space is perhaps unlikely, and yet in Australian foreign policy the concept seems to uh, have been placed into just about everything that we talk about. So in the last year or so the new Colombo plan was changed to taking the Indo-Pacific region, uh, and this was a way of including some of the Pacific Islands as, as possible destinations, but it doesn't uh, extend to, uh, to Africa or, or to Latin America. Um, the term has shown up in uh, Australian foreign policy speeches, in all sorts of policy documents, in IR think tanks, and it's become very common in, uh, in India as well. I saw a piece from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute the other day which was talking about the threat of white nationalist terrorism in the Indo-Pacific. And this was a very well-meaning sort of piece trying to link the US, the U uh, not the UK, sorry, uh, Canada, New Zealand and Australia. But I'm fairly certain that there hasn't been a significant uh, threat from white supremacy somewhere like India since, since 1947. Um, so what we're going to talk about today is what does the term Indo-Pacific mean? What explains its widespread popularity and why it's become so popular? Do different actors using the term mean the same thing when they talk about it? And what are the prospects for the idea making a serious change in the way in which international politics happens? So, we have three speakers today. The focus will be question and answer, but uh, our missing speaker, who was going to speak first, is Dr Priya Charko. She's Senior Lecturer in Politics and International Relations at the University of Adelaide, and she works on uh, foreign policy and political economy in India. We have the Head of School of uh, La Trobe's uh, School of Humanities and Social Sciences, uh, Nick Bisley. Where you work. Where I work, yes, correct. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, sir. <laughs> and uh, from Delhi via video link, we have Abhijit Singh. Abhijit 
is a former naval officer and now senior fellow and head of the Maritime Security Mar Maritime Policy Initiative at the Observer Research Foundation in Delhi. And my name is Alexander Davis, and I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at uh, La Trobe University's Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy uh, and the Australia India Institute, and I'll be moderating today's discussion. So what I'm going to do is give each of the panellists a chance to make a short five, minute, five to ten minute statement uh, to frame the issue and, and, and comment, and then we'll follow that up with some brief discussion and then open up to the audience for questions. So I will start with, with Nick Bisley and pass over to you. Thanks, Alex. Um, and thank you all for coming. Um, this, it's this sort of, looks like it's the last evening of summer here in Melbourne, so you prob probably ought to get out there and enjoy the vitamin D whilst it's still there, but, um, but you're here, so thank you. Um, I want to say th talk about three distinct things. I want to talk firstly about Australia's embrace of the Indo-Pacific, uh, where it's come from and why it's become, um, or we've rediscovered the Indo-Pacific. Uh, second, I want to say a quick, thing, quick comment about whether Australia does have an Indo-Pacific strategy. Um, as the military people like to say, bottom line up front, no, it doesn't. It talks a good talk on the Indo-Pacific, but we have yet to see an actually existing Indo-Pacific strategy. Uh, and this relates to the fact that, in my view, the, my third point, the Indo-Pacific is as yet um, a, a strategic system that is still becoming, it is not um, being at this point in time. Uh, as, as Alex alluded to, though, the Indo-Pacific as an idea in the Australian sort of strategic imagination uh, began life, if you want to sort of trace it in its articulation, uh, in the minds of the think tank world, and in particular the Lowy Institute. So coming out of writings from particularly Michael Wesley uh, and Roy Medcalf, who's probably the most visible, um, vocal and um, colourful metaphor user in the Indo-Pacific universe, um, you began to see it appearing in sort of 2009, 2010, and then more visibly in 2011 as Lowy um, sought to achieve its KPIs of getting um, hits on their website, getting cited in media and appearing in, in um, public policy documents, advocating this concept of um, an Indo-Pacific. Now, I'm being a little facetious about what their motives were, but um, one mustn't forget that there is an underlying incentive that drives think tanks um, that pushes them to be advocates for to kind of be policy entrepreneurs. Uh, the, 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 in the formal foreign policy discourse, that's to say in government um, speeches, documents and the like, it gradually appears and begins to first be cited in 2011 in the Australian Asian Century White Paper in a little box. It's a concept and it's clearly a bit of a thought experiment saying people are talking about this and we're thinking about it and it looks interesting. But in that white paper, um, it was sort of seen as not yet there. And, as, and the title of the white paper is, of course, Australia in the Asian Century White Paper, and the focus is on Asia. Uh, it's mentioned in one sentence in the National Security Strategy of 2013. In passing, mostly in that document, they talk about the Asia-Pacific. Uh, and then, as, as Alex said, in the, 20, in the 2013 Defence White Paper, uh, the Indo-Pacific earns its keep in terms of it gets capitalised, it becomes associated with Australia's region. Uh, it's in headings and the like. And, but although, in spite of the kind of confidence of the language in, in titles and talking about the region, um, the Indo-Pacific is still stated as something that is beginning to emerge, I think was the, is the exact term that's used. So the Indo-Pacific is beginning to emerge as an arc of strategic connectivity, but, it's, but in that paper it's clearly kind of seen as still emerging. Uh, three years later in the 2016 Defence White Paper, um, the Indo-Pacific is firmly stated as Australia's region. 
the, uh, the new Colombo plan, which had its first iteration in 2014, which was about the Asia-Pacific. By 2016, it's become about the Indo-Pacific, um, to which I remember going to a, a, Indo, uh, a, um, a Colombo plan uh, awards dinner where they announced the scholars, and I kept asking which, which parts of the Indo-Pacific exactly are they going in because they're going to get very wet. Um, yeah, my point being the Indo-Pacific is two oceans and people don't study in oceans, but be that as it may. Um, and then, of course, in 2017, Foreign Policy White Paper, it's clearly Australia's region. And as, as Alex pointed out, we now use, in government terms, the Indo-Pacific to mean our region. So if you're saying anything, and, and indeed that, that kind of topic in the Indo-Pacific is now, um, that, that sort of structure and format is absolutely standard. In fact, if you stand up and talk about the Asia-Pacific um, or Asia or the Western Pacific, People in kind of camera twitch ever so slightly because it's not quite in line with the talking notes, and it's and certainly with this current government. And it's interesting. The Indo-Pacific began life under the ALP, but the current government, um, the coalition government, has absolutely embraced this as a concept. So why has it become so important? Why has it become so dominant in the thinking? And I, again, want to bear in mind that I, I, I don't want to consume all of the time. Um, four big things. Firstly, there's the obvious kind of material connectivity. So this, the, the Indo-Pacific refers to the ways in which the, the Pacific Ocean and the Indian Ocean regions are being linked by particularly trade uh, connectivity. So factory Asia's selling stuff to, to all points west, and it still remains that the oceans are the cheapest way to move things around. And energy and commodity inputs from Africa, the Middle East, and elsewhere are travelling through these things. Um, so firstly, there's ties that bind, and, and as India and China particularly have become much, much bigger and much more economically prosperous, those, t those sinews, if you like, have had to become thicker and bigger and more significant. And of course, as a consequence, if you're China or if you're India, your maritime interests in these things are much greater than they were 20 years ago. So there's a kind of simple material argument that explains it. Um, and then what follows from that, of course, is that what, you th what we have on the Indo-Pacific theatre is this broadening out of strategic rivalry amongst um, the great powers of the region, which I would describe as Asia's great powers, but that's you know, my, my little point. Um, third reason why it's become important for Australia is what I call strategic narcissism. The Indo-Pacific makes us feel better because we feel more important. If you look at a map, particularly the Indo-Pacific boosters map, who like to sort of twist the region in which Australia is at the hinge point of this connection between the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, um, all of a sudden Australia seems to have a, a much greater geographic point of prominence. And in particular, if you are a member of parliament from Perth, and it isn't by coincidence that some of the, most, most strong, the strongest proponents of the Indo-Pacific concept in Australia come from Perth or represent Western Australia, um, Julie Bishop, I'm looking at you, um, then that has a particular kind of point of uh, interest. And of course, the, the fourth reason is about India. And, in, and from an Australian point of view, and in, especially, we haven't talked about the US, but but the Trump administration has grabbed a hold of the Indo-Pacific, which, interestingly, for Australian advocates of the Indo-Pacific, they're very uneasy about. So Trump, if Trump does something, they're kind of like, hang on, is this really a good idea? Uh, what it's about, and that fourth reason, is about bringing India into the, into the equation. So up, up until not too, not too long ago, when you, if you were talking about securing strategy in our region, just to leave its label blank, uh, you really talked about two distinct areas. There's the sort of Indian Ocean region and South Asia, and there was Asia-Pacific or the Western Pacific. Those two were quite separate conceptually and in the strategic imagination. Uh, what the Indo-Pacific does is bring India into that conversation. And if your interest is in ensuring that China is not the dominant power 
in our region over the next 20 or 30 years, you need India to be part of that conversation. And the way in which you do this conceptually, um, at least from an Australian point of view, is to yoke India in via the Indo-Pacific. Um, does um, bearing, we're talking a bit too long. Um, so does India, does Australia have an Indo-Pacific strategy? The simple answer is no, and it doesn't have one for two reasons. One, we don't have, we can't afford it. The Indo-Pacific is an enormous space, and even if you take a constrained view, Western Pacific past the eastern side of the Indian Ocean region, it's still an enormous terrain that Australia simply cannot afford to um, pro uh, prosecute a meaningful strategy diplomatically or, or um, militarily. Uh, the, the second reason I think we don't have a strategic uh, Indo-Pacific strategic policy is even though we use the term very strongly in, in our public diplomacy, in our public policy statements, we have three... There are really, that region has really got three distinct components to it if you look at the actually existing operations of Australian international policy. There is the Western Pacific, which is the most important bit. Um, that's where all our trade is. That's where our security alliances are, and that's where our military capabilities are at their strongest. And our diplomatic footprint at, is at its most um, dense. Uh, there's the Indian Ocean region, which is growing in importance and becoming significant, and Indo-Pacific is a way of saying, we think that over time is going to be more significant. And then there's the South Pacific or the Pacific. But they really do exist in, in the Australian, in the Australian um, uh, international policy firmament as three distinct areas that... Together, combined with the material constraints, mean that Australia, I think, at the moment, doesn't have an Indo-Pacific strategic uh, policy. I'll stop there and, and get to my third point, if you allow me, in Q&A. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, Priya, you're going to talk about the history of the term? Yes, and I'm very sorry that I'm late. My excuse is I'm still getting used to Melbourne traffic. I'm from Adelaide. <laughs> OK, so I'm going to talk about the history of the concept. Um, the first thing to say is that it's not a new concept. It first seems to have emerged in the 1920s in the work of a German geopolitical thinker called Karl Haushofer. And he was very influential over the Nazi regime, although there's some debate over whether he was a Nazi himself. So Haushofer developed a tradition of geopolitical thinking which combined ideas from German organicist nationalism with the geopolitical theories of Mackinder and uh, Mahan, and in his theory, nation-states were living organisms and they needed to expand in order to survive. So Haushofer divided the world up into different pan-regions. So there's pan-Asia, pan-Euro-Asia, pan-Africa, so on. And these different pan-regions were to be dominated by imperial powers, core states, he called them. And those core states would exercise their spheres of influence over these pan-regions. Now, the Indo-Pacific seems to have been a sort of a super pan region, which was bookended by the Indian Ocean Rim and the Pacific Rim. And he believed that the country that dominated this super pan region would control the world because it was a resource-rich region, uh, it had access to the land and the sea, and it was also 75% of the world, so it was it's a lot of territory to control. So Haushofer wanted Germany to control the Indo-Pacific region, and he wanted to do he wanted Germany to do that by allying with Japan, which was the core state of Pan Asia, he believed, and with Russia, which he believed was the pan, the core core state of Pan Euro Asia. So this uh, this geopolitical concept of the Indo-Pacific disappeared after World War II, obviously, and this was a legacy of of World War II with 
Nazi Germany being defeated and, and Japan being absorbed into the US alliance system, um, the centrality of the, the Pacific Ocean to the US empire and the Indian Ocean at that time became marginalised in terms of world trade. But the concept has come back with a vengeance in, in, the, in the late 2000s. And while it's being used in, in ways that are very different to the 1920s, there are similarities in terms of the context in the sense that in the 1920s, this was a period of dramatic political and economic upheaval. And the same thing is true of our time as well. This is a, a time of rapid global political change. But of course, it hasn't been China that's been using the term Indo-Pacific. I think centrally it's the, the re-emergence of the term is due to the rise of China as an economic power which has economic interests that stretch from the Asia-Pacific to Africa. But it hasn't been China that's been using the term. It's been the countries like Japan, Australia and India that are concerned about the strategic implications of China's economic rise. So there's a set of themes that tend to reoccur in contemporary discussions of the Indo-Pacific... One is this idea of a rules-based order. So commentators and political leaders alike, when they talk about the Indo-Pacific, often talk about the need to maintain an existing rules-based order or to create a new rules-based order in the Indo-Pacific. Another theme is the promotion of India as a partner to, uh, to the allied states of Japan, Australia and the United States, and Nick's just talked about that. And India is seen as being key to establishing a rules-based order in the region. A third theme is this idea of mini-lateralism. So this is the idea that instead of bilateral alliances or multilateralism, the regional security architecture of the Indo-Pacific should be built on a set of dialogues, military exercises and security initiatives that involve just three or four states and this can include China as well. So it's a different combination of, of three or four states, including China. So we're talking about trilaterals and quadrilaterals here instead of multilateralism. And this is because multilateralism is seen as now being sort of ineffective and unwieldy. And alliances are a bit too reminiscent of the Cold War. And India is a key, has a key role to play in the Indo-Pacific and India rejects this idea of bilateral alliances. At the same time, however, advocates of the Indo-Pacific are often very keen to emphasise the notion of ASEAN centrality. So this is the idea that existing regional associations in Southeast Asia and East Asia, like ASEAN and, and the East Asia Forum, should form the basis of Indo-Pacific regionalism. And I know Australian officials work really hard to try to convince uh, ASEAN leaders that the Indo-Pacific puts ASEAN at the centre of world affairs. I'm not sure that they're very successful at doing that, though. <laughs> so, nonetheless, despite this uh, recurring set of themes, the Indo-Pacific concept, concept remains uh, quite contested. And it remains contested within states as well as between states. So, the central points of debate, and I think there are three central points, one is the geographical scope of the region. So what is the Indo-Pacific geographically? So Australians tend to define the region as extending from the Pacific Ocean to India. So it's basically the Asia-Pacific plus India. India tends to define it as extending from the Western Pacific to East Africa, the, the coast of East Africa. And these definitions obviously reflect uh, pre-existing economic and strategic interests. 
Another point of debate is uh, related to whether the Indo-Pacific is becoming a single strategic system. So advocates of the Indo-Pacific argue that there are these growing security and economic interlinkages and this is creating um, close bonds and it's creating a, um, a single strategic system in the region. Critics of the Indo-Pacific idea tend to argue that these interlinkages are actually really overblown. Another debate has to do with the nature of the rules-based order. So what should these rules be and who should be at the forefront of establishing these rules? Japan, Australia and the United States tend to emphasise the role of democracies in establishing these rules. Um, the Trump administration last year laid out its vision for a free and open Indo-Pacific India, on the other hand, prefers the term free, open and inclusive Indo-Pacific and that semantic difference is important because it signals India's continued emphasis on strategic autonomy and its, its, its partnerships with countries like Russia, which the United States and Australia have sort of tense sort of relationships with. And it, and it also signals India's rejection of a sort of values-based quasi-alliance in the Indo-Pacific. So the Trump administration's free and, Indo free and open Indo-Pacific idea rests on tenets like respect for private enterprise and open markets, respect for sovereignty and freedom from coercion, and the rule of law. Now, these are very broad motherhood statements, and even if there was agreement that these sorts of tenets should form the basis of a rules-based order, what they actually mean in practice is going to differ quite significantly from state to state. So, for instance, the rule of law presumably is referring to international, international law. But we know that there is no universal interpretation of international law. International law is interpreted fairly radically differently um, between, between states. So we're at a point now where the terminology of the Indo-Pacific is, is being used more and more but we still lack clarity on what it actually is and what it actually stands for. Okay, uh, thank you very much, Priya. So we are, shockingly, we're having some minor technical difficulties. So while I wait for us to, to get Abhijit back online, um, why do you, just for both of you, uh, why do you think it, why did Australia need to imagine a new strategic construct to, to place India as being within the Asia Pacific? Surely it was there to begin with. Well, I think, um, I mean, it was there to begin with, sure. I mean, but, but I think the, the point, as Priya said, is over the past 10, 15 years, you've had a profound transformation of, um, of the global economy, of Australia's trading relations, and based, driven by China's rise. Um, and that's clearly destabilised the geopolitics of the region. And, and in a very long-term sense, not just this isn't just a little kind of ripple in, the, in, in things. This is a big, significant shift in the balance of power. Um, and... You know, you, you combine that with so a, a powerful China, a militarily powerful and economically prosperous China, with the advantages of geographic centrality. America is a non-resident power. You've got Australia with a, a strategic dependence on a non-resident power. Uh, and, you know, frankly, the reality is looked out over the next 20 or 30 years. Um, even, not, even in America, in the best-case scenario, is not going to be able to contain and corral China. You need help. And there is only one country, so the thinking goes, that's got the capacity to do that. Um, so that from a, from a re, kind of real politique point of view, one of the big drivers is, is that strategic reality. I think the second thing is um, the region is 
you know, the, the Asia Pacific was a was a Western, you know, Western Pacific literal conception of Australia's region. And you know, I could give you Asian regionalism 101 lecture, which goes back to um, how Australia's imagined its, its place in the world. Uh, but the material connectivity of of that um, uh, the economic driven by the economic prosperity of China had meant that these discrete parts of the region, you know, where you had a Southeast Asia, a Northeast Asia, a Southeast Asia, they're all kind of pretty distinct economically and politically, were being bound together. So you've got these two kind of imperatives that, that I think shift the strategic imagination in, in Canberra and, and elsewhere. You know, we're not alone on this one. Sure. Priya, I'd, I'd love to get your answer to that question, but I, I might pass over to Abhijit while we've, while we've got there. him there. <laughs> Abhijit, can you hear me? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, can you hear me, Alex? Am I clear? Yes, very clear. I think everyone okay. would agree. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, okay. We've been waiting a long time, but uh, can we uh, have your opening statement? <laughs> yes, yes, certainly. Uh, I'd like to start by saying that uh, some very good points by uh, uh, Nick and Priya. Uh, I'd just like to uh, speak on two or three issues. Uh, firstly, it's quite clear that the Indo-Pacific as a strategic concept has quite an the uh, foreign policy community. Uh, but uh, really, there's not one, there's many interpretations of the term Indo-Pacific, and a lot of uh, regional states have tended to see this concept in terms of their own national interests. Now, if you analyze this uh, closely, uh, we can see that uh, these different uh, versions or interpretations of the Indo-Pacific broadly fall into three category sets. Uh, the first is this... Uh, conciliatory model that is best represented by India's stand on the matter. Uh, and this, uh, this, this idea essentially uh, uh, highlights in the, uh, uh, inclusion and representation. Uh, so if, if, if you listen to, uh, am I clear? Can you, is the audio clear? Yes, yes, go ahead, sorry. If we go back to Prime Minister Modi's uh, speech at uh, the uh, Shangri-La dialogue last year, and a number of things that he spoke about, uh, he spoke in great detail on a number of issues, but the underlying thread uh, there was that this idea is based on the concept of inclusiveness, uh, and that, that, that there has to be uh, stakeholdership there has to be uh, a recognition of interests of all of the regional partners. And there was a clear sense that uh, Mr. Modi was pointing to the fact that this should not be seen as some kind of containment strategy for China. Uh, contrast this with the US's approach, which is more confrontational. So uh, Secretary, then Secretary of Defense, uh, uh, James Mattis, uh, when he spoke at, at Shangri-La, he was talking of some, some completely different things. He was talking about China, Chinese aggression in the South China Sea, uh, their violation of the law, um, how they were, uh, they were getting more aggressive in the regional littorals, and the sense that one gets from the U.S. standard that this is generally about what Priya called a rules-based order. So there have to be rules. There are These rules have to be abided by. There are clear red lines that states cannot cross. And most importantly, in the U.S. version, there must be a price to pay for those that are in infringement of the law. Now, these two concepts are, are, are they talk about the same thing. They talk about the Indo-Pacific, but they look at the Indo-Pacific from two completely different markets. Now, there's a third also uh, 
interpretation of the Indo-Pacific, which is really the ASEAN approach. And the ASEAN approach is more pragmatic. Uh, ASEAN uh, says that uh, there should not only be space for China to, to join the group, but that China should also play a key role in the governance institutions in the region. And that the interests of China and all of the regional partners should be accommodated. The sense that I got when I spoke uh, a couple of months back at a conference in, uh, in Southeast Asia, Vietnam, was that uh, the ASEAN members were saying that this rules-based order that a lot of these Quad countries, meaning India, Japan, US, and Australia, talk about, uh, these emphasize rules that we don't quite agree with, or or rather, we have our own set of rules. Uh, we are not too not too keen. To, for, uh, 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 for Indo-Pacific countries to demand accountability from China. That's not a rule that we, uh, that we are comfortable with. So, so ASEAN has a very different way of looking at it. Now, the stance in India is that Australia tends to swing between the conciliatory model and the confrontational model. So there is a time when, when you feel that the, the Australians are really wanting to beat the right act to China by sending their ships into the South China Sea by carrying out controls uh, there, and also uh, calling out uh, uh, Chinese interference in the domestic politics of Australia. But then uh, Australia also has an ongoing reset with China. The fact is that uh, these two nations have a very close economic relationship and that the uh, Australians want to look for ways to work with China. So. Uh, so this then looks a little bit like the Indian conciliatory model. Uh, uh, I uh, would, would like to say that uh, in Australia, perhaps there would be some criticism of India's approach because there seem to be some contradictions inherent in India's approach also that need to be addressed. One of them is that India uh, tends to prioritize its, uh, its challenges in the Indian Ocean region and looks at the Pacific as, a, as an adjunct theater. So when Indians are talking about the Indo-Pacific, they basically mean about, about the security challenges in the Indian Ocean and broadly the Indo-Pacific as an arc of, uh, of, of prosperity. So look at the Pacific only for trade, for reasons of connectivity, but for reasons of security, it's the Indian Ocean that, that matters uh, more to India. And also the fact that India has its own ongoing research with China after, uh, after Prime Minister Modi's visit to Wuhan last year. And that, that does tend to create some kind of confusion in the minds of international observers about what India's real policies are. Uh, my final point is going to be this, and then we can, sort of, we can open this up for Q&A, and then we can sort of look at uh, the issues in a, a, a nuanced fashion. My, the final point is that, you know, when strategic geographies change, or at least the, the conception of strategic geographies change, it, it creates both opportunities and risks. And in this case, what's happened is that we've somehow tended to look at the opportunities and neglected the risks. So we are not quite prepared for the risks of, of what happens if we sign up to the Indo-Pacific. One of the things that happens is that we legitimize China's presence, and in a manner of speaking, also it activates activities both in the uh, Pacific and in the uh, Indian Ocean region. And uh, somehow in India, there's great worry over the fact that the Chinese, the way they are growing their footprint in the Indian Ocean, the Belt and Road Initiative, by sending in Chinese submarines, you know, now they have a base in Djibouti, that this somehow cuts against the essential rationale of the Indo-Pacific, which is not true. Because the Indo-Pacific 
uh, uh, as a strategic concept, underlines uh, the interest of all stakeholders. And if India can be in the Pacific, then surely the Chinese can be in the Indian Ocean region. So, I mean, there are these dichotomies and contradictions that we need to navigate. But, uh, but rather than just looking at the opportunities that the Indo-Pacific offers in terms of greater opportunity to work together, I think there's all reason why we should also look at what we should do collectively to mitigate the risk. Thanks. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> Not sure what that was. Um, so um, we're about halfway through our panel, so I might open it up to the audience for questions. Do we have anyone who wants to start? I'll just ask uh, that you keep your question brief, because if, if it's for Abhijit, I'll have to repeat it to him to make sure he can hear. But uh, And give your name as well, if you could. Uh, yeah, I'm Hans Baer in the uh, School of Social and Political Sciences. I'm kind of wondering whether we're downplaying the US here. Uh, because um, while China is obviously a rising hegemon, and the U.S., some would argue, is a declining hegemon, in uh, the Asia-Pacific and perhaps in the Indo-Pacific, the United States is still a strong player. And I'm thinking of uh, a film that came out uh, maybe about two years ago, John Pilger's film, The Coming War with China, in which he talks about all of the military... Uh, and naval installations uh, that sort of surround China and push China into kind of a, a defensive posture. So I, I wonder what the panelists think of uh, th those thoughts. Sure. Uh, uh, yeah, I, well, I think the, the U.S.'s sort of embrace of the Indo-Pacific actually is an attempt to maintain its position in the Asia-Pacific. I think in the, with the Obama administration, it was more about trying to manage the US decline in a way that would maintain rules that uh, benefit the US. With the Trump administration, well, it's hard, to, it's hard to know what the Trump administration is thinking because they're not consistent, but with this uh, free and open Indo-Pacific initiative that they've put out, clearly they want to be on the front foot of controlling the way that the, the region reacts to the rise of China. So I think the United States is central. Yeah, I'd add one little um, precursor, which is, as Priya said, China doesn't talk about the Indo-Pacific, doesn't think the concept is particularly meaningful to it. Um, and, you know, you see a few frothy um, op-eds in the Global Times every now and then about how it reflects a kind of Cold War mindset. But China's most significant international move, geopolitically, geoeconomically, in, in every respect, is the Belt and Road Initiative. And Belt and Road is driven by a whole bunch of logics, but the most important insight, or one of the most important kind of germs of the idea, was um, a concept from around 2011-2012 um, from Wang Jiazhe of, of Beidou, who said essentially, you know, China's never going to be able to push America out of the Western Pacific. We're never going to be able to break um, the stranglehold that the Seventh Fleet have over us. Um, and if you, if you know your naval kit and you know your, your submarines, as Abhijit does much better than I do, um, they're probably right from a really hard-edged military point of view. So what's the answer? If you're China, you go west. And you, you resolve the problem of encirclement by sea by building land bridges and tunnels and roads and highways and dry land ports and that sort of thing. So China's answer, so to speak, to the Indo-Pacific challenge is already in place. And it's a physical connectivity play, the likes of which the world has never seen, of a kind that 
kind of match the sort of you know economic growth of the of the kind that China represents that we've never seen. Um, and as, as many India watchers here will know, India is very uneasy about and not not a big fan of Belt and Road. And I think in part because of the ways in which it potentially. Um, weakens or undermines India's geopolitical position. Um, Abhijit, the question is, um, are we neglecting the US and its military presence in the Indo-Pacific? Would you like to comment? The US and its military presence in the... Well, I mean, I think the, uh, the US has uh, is, is, is the progenitor and, and, and kind of the, the patron saint of this idea, the Indo-Pacific. But one of the reasons why there's been some kind of confusion over what the U.S.'s real approach to the Indo-Pacific is that the U.S. has has a very transactional approach towards its partners in the Indo-Pacific in the sense that uh, this, this whole thing about America first tends to intersect with, China, with U.S.'s security policies in the Indo-Pacific. And that's one reason why a lot of the regional states are a bit wary of taking U.S. positions on this issue. But the, really, the more interesting aspect of this, and this was pointed out to, I think, by, by, by Nick in passing, is China in the Indo-Pacific and what is the U.S. trying to do about it? Now, the Chinese do not subscribe to really the idea of the Indo-Pacific, but really they are the quintessential Indo-Pacific power in every sense. Not just in terms of their presence and their activities of what they are doing with the Belt and Road initiatives, but also look at the debates within China uh, about uh, some of the key aspects of the Indo-Pacific region. One of those was was in passing again highlighted by Priya, which was the rules-based order. Now, you see, what's happening is that in, in, in China, there's a debate that the rules-based order should really not be about rules. This should really be about ways in which we can all cooperate, come together, and build consensus in the Indo-Pacific. Now, this, on the face of it, sounds very nice. It means that China is willing to work with us together. But really, this is just being playing apologist for China's uh, aggressive activities in the Indo-Pacific region. What the Chinese are essentially saying is that on those areas where there is no agreement, for instance, the South China Sea and the East China Sea, as also China's activities in the Indian Ocean, there should be no debate. We should simply agree to disagree on these matters. We should agree simply on issues where we can cooperate. So if the Chinese can cooperate in HADR, which is Humanitarian Assistance and Disaster Relief, or perhaps infrastructure building, let's have norms in those areas. Let's not look at areas where there is a flauntist of ideas. And that is a sort of uh, uh, an idea that does resonate with some analysts, at least here in India, where there is, again, a great deal of confusion about what the rule should be. So I'm saying that the Chinese are smart because they've stayed outside the, the sort of the, the conceptual realm of the Indo-Pacific. And yet they have been pushing their own ideas to undermine some of the basic tenets of this conceptual construct, the, the values, the principles that are inherent here. And again, here, I think the U.S. is not doing enough because the U.S. is, again, mired in its own uh, sort of, uh, you know, differences with China, highlighting the, the, the Chinese challenge to, uh, to the literals. But it is not contributing conceptually, again, to the evolution of this concept. And if I can just highlight it, please give me half a minute more. It's important to, to, to note that the free and open Indo-Pacific that a lot of us talk about is very different from the Indo-Pacific model that was talked about by Prime Minister Abe, uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton in, in, in the late two, uh, 2000s decade. That was really a metaphor for coming together and working and, and looking at our, our interests and our responsibilities. This is really about 
taking the Indo-Pacific from a symbolic idea to some sense of, uh, of, of it being more substantive. So uh, we absolutely need to be looking at rules and, and, and evolving those rules. And there, I think, what countries haven't been doing enough. The Chinese have surreptitiously been pushing their own narrative, and that is beginning to find some sort of acceptance among the regional analysts. Uh, hi, my name's Audrey. Um, last year I was awarded a new Colombo Plan Scholarship and I heard you mention it a few times and I came here because of my interest in the Indo-Pacific. Um, but mainly when I first heard about the scholarship, I didn't really understand why it was happening and no matter how many times I researched, I didn't really come to an answer. Um, when I went to the ceremony, I started getting more of an idea of what was happening, but I wanted to hear what you think the real reason is for the new Colombo and like why they're <laughs> sending all of us out to the Indo-Pacific. Cool, thanks. Why, why the Colombo plan? Um, look, I, there's a couple of things, um, just from my point of view, and let the others um, weigh in. But I mean, I think there's a, there's a clear, obvious reason, which is what the government wants to do is get um, the next generation of, of leaders to have a better understanding of, of our region and to send people out. And, and um, the old Colombo plan brought elites from Asia to Australia to, to spend time um, studying and taking full degrees here. Um, but it's, I think it, it's also about, I think, trying to um, create elite networks between Australian elites and the regional elites. Um, the figure that in the, in the Australian Foreign Policy White Paper of 2017 that I think is probably the most important figure in that document and which almost no one has talked about is on about page four or five, and you can tell I lead a fairly dreary life, um, that there's these little bubbles, and the bubbles are growth and there's a bubble for where everyone is now and then it's surrounded by the bubble of where their economy is going to be in 2030 or 2050 coming to the, the end point um, and you've got a little bubble for a medium-sized bubble for China it gets enormous and America's bubble is, is it's bigger but it's, it's dwarfed by China India sort of thing Australia's bubble barely moves and what that means is the our relative position in Asia and the world what follows from this is going to decline precipitously so we're currently the 13th biggest economy in the world by raw GDP, 20th by purchasing power parity, probably 25th really if you look at the cost of buying beer in Melbourne as anything to go by. Uh, but, uh, but, but in all seriousness, Australia's relative position is going to decline very significantly. So our ability to compete nationally, in the, in the bat, not in the battle of ideas, but in you know, marketplaces, in geopolitics and diplomacy, is going to depend enormously by our ability to navigate a world it's going to be very different from the one we've had in the past. And that's the sort of underlying one. And, and that's the bit that gets people like me to say to Julia Bishop in her office, if you're serious about this, you need to quadruple the budget you're spending on it. And spend more on universities. But, you know, that, we, we'd say that all the time. I might abuse my position as chair here because I've been spending a fair bit of the last couple of weeks working on applications for New Colombo Plan grants and, and going through the papers and proposals and talking to our, our La Trobe Broad office about you know what do, what are they looking for, and they're looking for study tours and uh, programs like it sounds like the one that you went on that will create long lasting sort of institutional links, um, but that will also um, that they want students to follow up on the on the ties that they made in their in their host country, and um, they want the. I think they also want it to lead to more collaboration between between Australian universities and uh, and universities in in the target countries in the in the Indo Pacific. But from my perspective, the purpose is that teaching in Asia with Australian students there is just 
the best teaching experience that I've that I've ever had. So <laughs> that's a slightly different perspective on it. Priya, did you want to comment? Well, so I guess the point is that the Indo-Pacific doesn't just reflect an emerging reality. It's an attempt to create one. Um, so the one way to create a reality is to talk about things slightly differently, talk about the Indo-Pacific, but it's also to invest resources, and which is what the Australian government is doing, although on a fairly small scale, but it's an effort at least to try to do that. Sort of Australia's thoughts, if you have any um, to shed light on whether or not Australia supports uh, Washington's tacit um, integration of Taiwan into the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy uh, and sort of where, how Taiwan factors into the rise of China and the FOIP as a strategy to contain China within this broader kind of liberal uh, grouping of countries. Abhijit, the question is, um, how is, how does Taiwan fit into American America's understanding and Australia's understanding of the Indo-Pacific. I might, I might let you start with this one if you're, if you're interested. No, uh, look, uh, the Taiwan question is a bit complex in the sense that uh, here in India there is, there is the sense that uh, if the Taiwan question comes up for discussion or if, the, if, if Taiwan is included in the uh, Indo-Pacific and if all of us four countries India, Australia, Japan, and uh, US were to make common cause on that Taiwan question, that that would be deemed too provocative by China. So one of the things that is important to understand about the Indo-Pacific is that it's important to push your ideas gradually because it could create a disruption. If you if you try to go too hard and too fast on anything, and Taiwan is one of those ideas, uh, it could create a disruption and that could beget a... Uh, uh, a backlash from China. Uh, what we want to do ideally is to is to uh, is to build a loose coalition of interests and also understand what the Chinese strategy is. The Chinese strategy, as I see it, is, is a smart strategy in that they're not actually being too aggressive outside the South China Sea, which is a core region of national interest. So the Chinese argument for the South China Sea, as also Taiwan, is that this. This lies at the heart of China's uh, China's core interests, and that the Chinese are not going to, going, to, going to compromise on any of these issues. But beyond that, the Chinese are actually willing to work with a lot of partners, both in the Pacific as well as in the Indian Ocean. If we are going to uh, be too aggressive about our policy towards uh, towards China and also reach out to Taiwan to include them in, in our uh, broad coalition against China, that would almost certainly uh, create a problem. I think the, the solution to this lies in doing much more economically and uh, rather than militarily, but to have a sort of a hedging strategy in which you build your capabilities both in the Western Pacific as well as in the Indian Ocean to get to prepare for any kind of eventuality in which the Chinese might resort to aggression, perhaps uh, in the in the South China Sea or maybe the Eastern Indian Ocean, uh, but not overplay the uh, the uh, the military dimension of the quad. I think uh, I think that that approach uh, in in both the South China Sea and on the Taiwan question will be the appropriate approach. Two quick points. One is um, there is very little daylight between Australia and the United States on Taiwan. 
um, I think, particularly under the current government. Um, we have, for at least six or seven years, very closely coordinated our East Asian um, policy. Um, the most visible form of this was, in, in relation to this particular question, was in 2013 when the PRC unilaterally issued an air defence identification zone over the East uh, China Sea, uh, and Australia came very quickly, publicly, to a position that was identical to the United States, and that was very clearly done publicly to see it, so everyone knew kind of that they were aligned. Um, but it's a, it's a point about which worries Australian strategic planners enormously because Taiwan is a red line for the US. Taiwan is, under the right circumstances, a place where the US and China will fight um, under very particular circumstances. If they do so, the risk of Australia being pulled into a conflict with China is very real and managing how we would manage that is extremely difficult. But it's unlikely, but it's there. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I haven't seen many references to Taiwan in the US approach to the Indo-Pacific, the free and open Indo-Pacific idea. And I suspect that if it started talking about Taiwan in that context, all of the other countries involved here would stay very quiet because it would make obvious that this is some sort of ploy to contain China and that's not what the countries here want. Okay, I know we have a question over here from Andrew. Does anyone else have a question? We'll do a, a final round of multiple questions and if anyone is, if, if there are any more out there. Yes. Uh, uh, yes, yourself and then, uh, and then one last one over here. Can I, just the other side of the Indian Ocean, Africa, and particularly South Africa, mm. has, has the con construct of the Indo-Pacific actually registered in, in East Africa? If so, what has been the response, particularly from South Africa, particularly given South Africa's historic connections with India? Uh, we might go so for a, a quick answer, or can we... Well, we'll get one more question. Short then. answers, I don't know. So. <laughs> okay, well, I used to work in South Africa, and just when this sort of idea was coming up, and they were very enthusiastic about it, you know, the people, South African Institute of International Affairs, because it sort of meant that South Africa might play a larger role in, in world politics. But it hasn't, from what I understand, it hasn't really been institutionalised there. And Africa's sort of been ignored by, by Australia and Japan and the United States in Indo-Pacific strategies. So uh, I think they'd love to be more involved in the Indo-Pacific region. I have friends who've been trying to put out volumes with Indo-Pacific in the title to get... Uh, South Africa plays more prominently, but it's not really taken off as far as I can tell. I also worked in South Africa and I barely heard anything about it. And it was in 2000, 2016 when it was quite a prominent discourse in Australia. So I think it's neglected. Um, yes, you're, you have a question? Yeah, I just um, it was a similar sort of question about perspective. I've always found it interesting that um, in the UK, for example, I wasn't called Asian because Asian connotes South Asian. And so maybe it's a matter of perspective because being from Singapore, uh, I think Indian and China heritage has both equal currency. But uh, I guess the question is, um, from a European perspective, perhaps Dick or others might want to sort of say, is this gaining traction as a term or uh, do you think it has particular um, li livelihood beyond the Trump era or are people just going to sort of stick to their own concepts of Asia, which may be more uh. refined? It's sort of it's sort of got traction, but it's only kind of functional traction, partly relating to the point that Priya made, which is this is the language people are using, and it's become a bit of a kind of code that says we're interested in this part of the world. Um, and it's really since the Trump administration, everyone's gone, oh, 
this is the language we use. Um, and the, but the Europeans, um, both collectively, so the EU, but also individually, the major European powers of, of um, particularly France and Germany, are seeing a greater strategic significance in the Indo-Pacific, for the sake of keep it simple, uh, and are looking to be part of you know, military operations, so you know, whether it's freedom of navigation exercises, whether it's port calls, whether it's military exercises, um, as well as institutional architecture, um, the European countries, and again individually and collectively, are very keen to join things like the East Asia Summit. So they see the geostrategic and geoeconomic significance of this part of the world and are wanting to be a greater part of it. And they are using increasingly the language of the Indo-Pacific as a way of almost sort of signalling we're part of this. But, but that's really only been once the Trump administration, once the US has used this as the sticker that says this is our region, I think, had, had the Trump administration followed the language of, of the Obama administration and talked about Asia or the Asia-Pacific, that's the language they'd be using. So they're kind of followers on it. Uh, Priya, then I'll pass over to Abhijit for the final word. Let's say something on yes, 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 yes. Go ahead. Yeah, so, you know, uh, a couple of years back when I was serving in the Navy, we did an exercise with the South African Navy. And one of the, one of the things that you learn when you do exercises in, in, in the African littoral is that African countries care a lot about security issues in the Western Indian Ocean. Uh, and, uh, and, and they're looking forward to doing much more with it now, with Indo-Pacific states in mitigating some of the challenges in the Western Indian Ocean. So the emphasis from, um, from, uh, from countries like uh, South Africa, Tanzania, Kenya, is all on, on capacity building. And there, India and, and, and also now Australia and Japan are actually playing quite a major role in building the capacity for some of these navies and coast guards. But the other thing that often comes up for discussion when you discuss security issues in the, in the Indo-Pacific is actually blue economies. They're, they're, uh, they're keen for, uh, uh, for us countries to look at ways in which they can improve their economic prospects beyond just the, 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 the security challenges of you know, piracy and, and, uh, and armed robbery and, uh, and you know, trafficking and things like that. So I think uh, if we've got to look at African countries and, and, and the Western Indian Ocean is also a very important part of the Indo-Pacific, we have to move beyond the China question. There are big non-traditional security issues there. There are big questions of, of uh, capacity building and creation of livelihoods. That, uh, that these countries would be more interested in. When we talk Africa, we should actually shift our frame of reference a little bit. Um, Priya, do you have any final thoughts? Uh, well, look, this term's been around now for 10 years and it hasn't always been the United States at the forefront of it. I had the, uh, the former head of strategy and defence told me that he had introduced the term to the Pentagon. So Australians are really invested in this term. So is Japan. India's sort of. Um, so regardless of whether American interest waxes and wanes, I think this term is actually um, going, to be, going to be sticking around for a while. Okay, wonderful. Well, uh, we are out of time, so I'd just like to ask you all to join me in, in thanking our panel and thanks to all of you for, for joining us on the work night.